Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder. This is a show, the first episode of this show, that asks old questions about new technology. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the old-fashioned radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder in partnership with KGNU. This month, our guest is Lori Emerson, a uh, professor uh, like me at uh, CU Boulder. She teaches in English and Intermedia uh, Art, Writing, and Performance. And she's also the founding director of the Media Archaeology Lab. Now, on this show, we ask the guests to come to us with a question, to provoke our questions with, with a question of their own. And the question that she's brought Uh, to us today is, what is a lab? This is uh, uh, a fitting question for us to begin with. Uh, This show, as I mentioned, is an outgrowth of a new project uh, called the Media Enterprise Design Lab. Um, And it's also something uh, deeply connected with uh, some of the anxieties that we'll be probing throughout this show. Um, The language of the lab uh, introduces this kind of scientism, this image of white lab coats, none of which we at the Media Enterprise Design Lab have any of. We have no space. There's no physical lab. There's no costumes. Uh, uh, there's not a whole lot of science going on. Um, but that word still evokes something. That word is still something that we're playing with and engaging with. And it's something that that Laurie Emerson has been uh, engaging with and playing with also uh, in her media archaeology lab. Now, this show uh, takes its name, looks like new, from a phrase repeated throughout the work of the uh, French agrarian poet and founder of the Catholic worker, Peter Morin. He would say over and over, use this phrase, so old that it looks like new, a philosophy so old that it looks like new. And I've found in my work over the last few years that this is an interesting litmus test for things worth paying attention to. What are the things that are so old that they look like new, that have both a kind of freshness in the moment, but also a connection to the past? Um, if you've been listening to this time slot on KGNU uh, uh, for a while now, you might have heard uh, the previous show I was working on called the Co-op Power Hour. Uh, uh, One of the reasons I got so interested in cooperative enterprise and cooperative businesses across our region is is that those are a kind of thing that's so old that they look like new. Uh, They are uh, uh, something that a new generation is coming into for new reasons, but they have roots uh, uh, back in our past. And, uh, And this is something that we'll be looking at Uh, This is a theme that we'll be coming back to over and over again on this new show, looking at different people, especially engaging with technology, engaging with the things that seem so new, um, uh, but asking questions uh, 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 that are of a different time, uh, that resonate uh, backward, that have a kind of deeper uh, uh, temporality than than what presents itself uh, immediately in the moment. Um, So... Lori Emerson, welcome to the show. Thank you for being uh, the first guest on Looks Like New. Thank you for having me, Nathan. It's great to be here. Well, let's start with 
Um, you, you raised the question of what is a lab. Let's start with the question of what your lab is. Tell us a bit about what the Media Archaeology Lab is and what it looks like. Well, the the Media Archaeology Lab is uh, intentionally an ongoing, open-ended enterprise. And I think in that sense, I'm trying to use the lab as a way to undo or rethink um, assumptions about what labs are and what labs could be. Um, so the Media Archaeology Lab is basically a uh, a space where we have still functioning media going back to the 19th century. Our collection is strongest with our um, collection of computers and vintage game consoles from the 1970s and the 1980s. And what makes the lab really special is that everything in the lab works and is meant to be turned on, played with, tinkered with, experimented with. Um, and to that end, we have an ongoing artist residency series run by curator Maya Livio at the CU Boulder. And uh, we have an ongoing stream of artists coming in from around the world to play with these machines and respond to them by creating art projects. So superficially, that's what the lab is. But again, I'm also trying to use the lab as a way to experiment with alternate administrative structures to try to turn the lab into a non-hierarchical communal enterprise so that it's open to all kinds of people and it affords all kinds of people op opportunities to take up uh, teaching projects, pedagogical projects, again, art projects, research projects, really whatever they want. And you see this at play when you, when I've gone in there, uh, uh, sometimes announced, sometimes unannounced, um, uh, and find people working on uh, one kind of odd project or another. I mean, I, I think a couple visit, visits ago, I walked in, saw somebody uh, from a faraway place uh, visiting and, and uh, working on old Apple HyperCard programs um, uh, uh, using the technology that is allegedly obsolete to do something new, to create some, to do creative work, to do art. Uh, now, tell us a bit about where this came about. What what is the origin story of this place? Uh, the lab started about a year after I got hired at CU Boulder, and I was very fortunate to get a, a, a little startup grant from Atlas, a little entity on campus dedicated to technology, media, and the arts, basically. And um, I was one of the first people at CU to be hired in the arts and humanities explicitly to work on digital media. So I think people were very excited. I can't believe it's only been 10 years, but 10 years ago, a person like me at CU was pretty unusual. Um, so to better support me, Atlas gave me $20,000 to start up a lab. And I think that they probably thought I was going to do something regular. Uh, like like a physical lab with a bunch of computers that English majors could use because I was hired into the English department. And um, I did a bit of a, I don't know, 360? Maybe it was a 180. I don't know. <laughs> and instead decided to stockpile Apple IIe computers uh, because at that time I was really uh, in love with a experimental Canadian poet by the name of B.P. Nickel. 
BP Nickel worked in so many different registers as a as a poet and a writer. He wrote concrete poetry, sound poetry. He wrote for the uh, children's show Fraggle Rock. Um, but he also wrote one of the first kinetic digital poems in 1982-1983, and he did it in Apple Basic on an Apple IIe computer. And he distributed these poems on five and a quarter inch floppy. Um, so at that time. Again, 2008, 2009, almost nobody had access to the originals. What we all had access to was a a QuickTime emulation that was available on YouTube thanks to a bunch of poets' work in Vancouver to try to get greater accessibility to this poem. Um, So with the background that I have in experimental poetry and poetics from uh, SUNY Buffalo, I've had a long-standing interest in the materiality of language and the materiality of the word. And so it seemed like a natural extension of the work I'd already been doing to try to look at what difference it really would make to researchers and students to have access to the the materiality of the original environment and the original floppies and to give students especially the opportunity to hear the computer whir and crunch as it starts up and it reads the floppy and then to have to interact with a command line interface rather than a graphical user interface. Um, That was interesting, uh, but a fairly short-lived experiment. Um, And... Uh, very shortly after I stockpiled these Apple IIe computers, I started to get interested in the other comparable personal home computer of the time, which was the Commodore 64. And I think just that opened up um, the lab to become what it is now. And I just started accumulating all kinds of weird and wonderful artifacts. Um, In fact, in 2009, it was fairly unusual for people to be buying vintage computers, uh, especially on eBay. So I happened to start making friends with some of the people on eBay selling their their goods, and they then started to give me things, which is really wonderful. Uh, one of our longtime donors, Keith Moore, was one of those people, and we're still in touch with them. And over, over the 10 years of the lab's existence, he's given us a lot of really wonderful, cool machines. What is the world? Yeah, what is the world out of which he comes? Out of which the other people who have come to support the lab come? What is the um, uh, uh, what is the community out of which you draw this uh, this raw material, uh, these machines? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, Keith is a a longtime home brewer um, tinkerer, and. He cut his teeth on computing and electronics in the 1970s, as far as I know, working with his dad, I think. Um, and he's been working in the computer industry since, I can't remember, but probably the early 1980s. Um, and he just has a real fervent passion for um, getting at the insides of computers, getting at the guts and making and building things from the ground up. And I think he's equally passionate about trying to give people um, access to the insides of their computers, which they really don't have anymore. Um, So over the years, I think a lot of our supporters have come from that demographic. We've got 10 volunteers right now working in the MAL, which is incredible. And I would say about half of them uh, are between the ages of incredibly like 18, 19, 20 years old and 
people somewhere in their 50s, but all of them have that mentality in common of being tinkerers. Um, and then I think the, the, the other demographic of people who support the lab and are interested in it are women um, and women who have, a, I guess, a, a similar dedication to accessibility, but maybe more broadly. So accessibility less necessarily on the level of hardware and more accessibility in terms of, uh, I don't know, just, just uh, um, cre- helping to create an environment in the lab where anyone feels welcome to be there and anyone feels welcome to... Uh, open up a computer or play with a computer regardless of their expertise or their background. Right. A lab is normally, you know, it strikes me as as a permission space, right? And a space where you need a certain level of expertise to enter in. Yeah. You need to uh, have certain qualifications. You need to know a certain language, all these things. Yes. Um, what do you do to help create another kind of space in this lab? Yeah. It's... I've been asked that question before, and I can't quite put my finger on it. It's strange, but just creating the intentionality towards making it open seems to produce that effect. Um, But I have thought hard about, as much as I can, about the lab. So I think about decor, as goofy as that sounds. I really try to make it appear to be a playful, welcoming space. So we've got rainbow carpets and... uh, uh, I also try to think about <clears throat> the ergonomics of the space. Like, w- what is the ideal arrangement of computers that will make people feel like they have the right and the privilege to touch them and play with them? Um, I try to think about what uh, spatial arrangement of the furniture or the arrangement of the exhibits will make the lab appear less like a, a museum entity and more like this open-ended, playful place. Um also, I, I think the way in which um, I really make it clear that the lab is open for anyone to come in and take up any kind of project that they want, eventually people started to believe me, and then they, they came to the lab and stuck around. Yeah. And so this, this language of the lab, it sounds like kind of came about by accident. It was, was it kind of assigned to you by the original funder, by Atlas, when, you know, saying here's money for a lab, or did you come to them saying, I want to have a lab? No, they. That's, that's a really good question. Yeah, they originally suggested that I start a lab, and I think I took that up. Uh-huh. And at the beginning, I called it the Archaeological Media Lab rather than the Media Archaeology Lab because I actually had no idea that there was this field that it was thriving in Germany called Media Archaeology um, at that time, 2008, 2009, I really don't think there were that many labs in the arts and humanities. At the same time, I can't say that I gave it a lot of thought about the significance of me calling it a lab. But I can say that um, at CU, calling something a lab rather than a center or some other name gives you a lot of institutional freedom that I didn't realize I was granting myself. Huh. Something that people in the humanities might not have known about or experienced. Yes, yes, exactly. And I think the the institution as a whole only recently has understood that there could be such a thing as a lab in the arts and humanities, um, which is probably why it's gone as a unnoticed, under the radar 
uh, unregulated entity on campus, if that makes sense. Now, say a bit about what media archaeology is, this term that you discovered after you'd already used something like it as the name of this lab. Yeah. Well, I've come to realize that media archaeology really doesn't have a, a firm, established definition. Um, but when I first came to it, I understood it as an approach to history and the, the history of technology in particular that was invested in, first of all, rethinking what history is and trying to think about history of technology in particular, not so much as a an accumulation of technological in, innovations that build on each other and, and create this beautiful linear narrative arc of progress where we arrive at the present moment and everything is just inherently naturally better. But instead it was interested in critiquing that notion of history and rethinking it in terms of non-linearity, I suppose, or ruptures. Ruptures is a really popular term in media archaeology that comes from the French philosopher Michel Foucault, who was similarly invested in going back and looking at history as a, a series of breaks rather than a, a, a continuous series of events. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> and I mean, the, the archaeology metaphor really resonates with what you're doing. I mean, when you think about archaeology in the in the most conventional sense of like digging up old rocks and structures of ancient civilizations, right? You're relying on the degree to which those things exist still, right? Yes. The degree to which they've been preserved and the degree to which they have a life that might go on, right? In the way you think of of uh, uh, you know the the Great Pyramid, right? It is still living in the sense it's still being used and has human significance and and so forth. And 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 that kind of archaeology is something that it, you know is alive in this lab, where these these machines are still being used, are still being used as if they are they have life yet in them, rather than simply being regarded as um, a stepping stone toward the the latest iPhone. Yeah, exactly. I think the idea of archaeology that I'm trying to deploy in the lab is both spatial and temporal in a way that it flattens, ideally, distinctions between past, present, and future. So let me try to explain that. I think archaeology is spatial in that we want people to uncover the layers of computing to try to get down into the guts and really understand how the uh, the hardware and certain design decisions to do with the creation of these machines really filters up to the surface and informs what and how you're able to do. So that's more spatial. It's temporal as well in terms of how we're trying to activate these machines so that we can understand the temporality of the machines in and of themselves. I hope that makes sense. So both of those things combined really makes the distinction between past and present um, null. You're listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio and uh, online as well. We've been speaking with Laurie Emerson, director of the Media Archaeology Lab at CU Boulder. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Uh, this month, we're speaking with uh, my colleague at CU Boulder, uh, Lori Emerson. She's the founding director of the Media Archaeology Lab. And one of the uh, 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 questions that will recur over and over again on, on this show, this is our first episode, so we're just getting started, but I can feel it, right, is the question about how we build organizations and economies around our technology, right? And how we, um, uh, uh, how we build those kinds of social flows. Um, and so in addition to running a lab yourself, you've also been doing a historical investigation of labs before, uh, before yours, before uh, uh, the, the image of the lab we might have uh, today, can you talk about where that journey begins for you? Where where did the lab as a concept, as a practice, come from? Um, well, I hope this answers your question. I, I've been working on a book with uh, two other people, UC Perica, who's in London, and Darren Wurschler, who's in Montreal. We're working on a book called The Lab Book, Situated Practices in Media Studies, that's going to be published by the University of Minnesota Press. Um, and the book really is trying to tackle where labs have come from, just like you asked me. And it turns out that the question is so much more complex and probably impossible to answer than, than I guessed. Um, so in the book, we're trying to tackle this notion of what a lab is from five or six different directions, and we're talking about the lab as as an assemblage of forces. And um, I just finished writing a, a chapter on the space of the lab and trying to look at the history of the space of the lab. Um, and my sense is that when labs began really depends on how you understand the space of a lab. So although labs proper, those entities called laboratories, didn't start to emerge, it seems, until the 16th century or so, I was, I've been able to trace back to at least the 8th century or the 9th century architectural structures that have all of the components of labness to them. Um, and some of those components are furnaces, sources of heat, sources of energy, um, open, configurable workspaces, um, that sort of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And those are, are those in monasteries? Are those, what are the contexts in which those earliest ones? Yes, thank you. Uh, so the earliest one that I've been able to find was a, uh, a plan for a monastery called the Plan of St. Gall. And this was a plan for um, a, a community built around a monastery um, that was created in the 19th, 9th century. It was never built, um, but it was an incredible complex that included medicinal gardens, um, areas for nursing the sick, areas for learning, 
uh, libraries, quiet areas, contemplative areas, but also a series of interconnected workshops connected to all of those other areas that had at the center of them these uh, furnaces or sources of energy and heat that I mentioned. And then in the coming centuries, people started to build monasteries exactly along the lines of this plan. So I'm sure that there's entities before the ninth, ninth century that did something similar. I'm not sure what they are, but I, I had to draw the limits. <laughs> I was astonished to find myself all of, all of a sudden back in the ninth century, considering I'm a person whose area of expertise is much more in the 20th century and the 21st century. Well, it's a kind of telling example. Um, uh, the, the monastery is a place that is built to protect um practices of non-obvious purpose, right? Um, non-obvious practical purpose, at least, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a place where uh, that, that enables people to spend most of their time praying rather than doing ostensibly practical uh, uh, activities. And so m maybe it makes sense that a lab, uh, uh, if it is a place that is exploring things whose outcomes can't quite be known yet, you know, would arise there. You know, in a place that the society around had designated for the things that um, don't make sense otherwise. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, and it also really brings into relief how when you do explicitly call something a lab, it may not necessarily be a lab as we've historically known it, but it's much more about deployment, I guess, is the word I keep getting hung up on. Like they're trying to deploy a certain sense of something or they're trying to uh, deploy power usually or prestige or legitimacy. So just by calling something a lab, I guess, doesn't necessarily make it a lab. Um, yeah, I don't know. If that... Well, one, one object that you have in there uh, is the this big old closet-sized uh, uh what is it? Record player, gramophone, phonograph player, phonograph player. Yeah. Uh, 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 from anyway, it's an Edison, right? Made by Thomas Edison's company. So, and that's another case that you take up in this uh, in this research you've been doing, the case of Thomas Edison's yeah. lab, can, w w which has this kind of paradigmatic, like kind of, it's a um, it, it's a name that we all know. It, kind of this founding myth of the of the uh, great American innovator guy. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what that lab looked like, how that was constituted, what kind of politics and authority were wrapped up in it as well? Oh, I have so much to say about Edison's lab. Um, well, let me let me see. I, as far as I know, Edison started up his first major laboratory in Menlo Park, New Jersey, and it got its start around 1876, 77, 78. And uh, what's really interesting to me about that enterprise is the way in which he was very adamant about claiming that that lab was new and unprecedented. Yet, if you look at the spatial configuration of the lab, it really has a lot in common with those monasteries that we were talking about, and the 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 floor plan of the lab and the and the plan of the area in general looks a lot like the plan of Saint Gall. Um, so it's it's interesting to be able to 
track how Edison is trying to, again, deploy labness for the sake of uh, profit, actually. So as far as I know, this was the first major undertaking to try to attempt to turn a lab into a, an, into an entity that that is oriented towards profit. <clears throat> there were apothecaries before that that I'm sure needed to make a profit, but certainly not at the scale that Edison was aiming after. Um, but the the space of the lab, interestingly, was flexible and configurable, just like the spaces in those monasteries, um, and had a lot of opportunities for um, communal work projects, um, opportunities for workers to come together and collaborate. It had a little learning area, a library, a reading nook, and it also had an area that looked exactly like the apothecaries of the 16th century, which is really interesting to me. And he brought in a machine shop. So I, I suppose if Edison did innovate, his innovation was scale that he had managed to take all these bits and pieces from these other entities that were invested in doing and experimenting and glom them all together in this one big sort of empty factory style space. Now, what are some of the other labs that helped define that image for the image of the lab for our time for this era? Well, this could be just my interest in media studies and media labs in general, but to me, there is a direct line between Edison's lab and the MIT Media Lab. Um, so the MIT Media Lab opened up in 1985, I believe, and it too tried to do so many of the things that Edison tried to do. Uh, the MIT Media Lab is built almost entirely out of this narrative of um, newness and a historical newness as well. And at the same time, if you look at the spatial organization of that lab and the administrative organization as well, it is very similar to, to Edison's lab. Um, yet at the same time, if you read narratives by the various MIT Media Lab directors, you can see how they disavow any historical ties. In fact, there's a, a book by the current director, Joey Ito, that at some point has him gently criticizing Edison for Edison's lack of innovation, which I just think is hilarious because the MIT Media Lab wouldn't exist if it weren't for Edison's lab. Um, but anyway, but of course, between the Edison's lab and the MIT Media Lab is a, you know, 90, 90 year difference, if I'm doing the math correctly, or a 100 year difference. And there's lots of uh, iterations of labs that come along in that time, industrial labs, industrial research labs, military labs, university labs. Um, but I think that there's something really powerful and unique about the MIT Media Lab and the way um, it's positioned itself as this entity for newness and innovation that a lot of the other ones were not quite doing. Yeah, and again, like the monastery, I think there's this kind of recurring relationship with the surrounding economy, right? There's this this uh, role that the lab plays on the one hand, even something like Edison, where you have to 
Uh, it exists to serve a business purpose. It exists to make a profit, as you said, but it also has these nooks, these spaces for apparently non-productive activity, right? Yeah. So it, it seems like over and over they're holding that balance. Uh, uh, the lab's job is to serve capitalism or serve whatever the kind of values, value uh, 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 production structure of the society is, but to somehow do it, to somehow create a space in which that isn't the override, doesn't feel like the overriding purpose, where something else is possible, where you're able to uh, uh, see through or beyond uh, the the system outside. Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. And I, and I need to do a better job in our book of making that clear. My tendency, and I think the tendency of a lot of scholars is to try to uh, paint something as either all good or all bad. And none of these labs are all good or all bad. I, I think when I was first starting to understand the MIT Media Lab, my tendency was to dismiss it as just this pure sort of gross entity for neoliberalism and naked, you know, accumulation of profit. Um, but you're absolutely right. The MIT Media Lab is a very complex entity. And while it does get a lot of funding from the military and military industrial complex and probably has been responsible for producing a lot of um, unpleasant technology, it does have these little nooks, like you say, of interesting experimental activity that doesn't necessarily have an uh, an eye toward profit. Um, and I know that there are projects going on right now at the MIT Media Lab that are really oriented toward um, civic engagement and and uh, political critique. And for example, there's a PhD student working there right now on. Um, trying to rethink facial recognition software because facial recognition software is infamous for not being able to recognize people with darker skin, brown skin, black skin. And so this person is working on uh, totally rethinking how facial recognition software works. So it's really hard for me to criticize something like that. But it does, a project like that does definitely depend on the lab's ability to raise massive amounts of money with uh, its external fundraising and money from maybe unpleasant entities. And so when when someone in the humanities takes up the language of the lab, is it always parasitic on the scientific use of the lab language? Is it always does it always depend on that? Um, uh, uh, or is there something that a humanities lab, uh, can add? Is there something that is distinct about doing uh, uh, humanities uh, in a, and, and the arts in a lab format as opposed to a studio or as opposed to uh, uh, simply the office or, or any other place where uh, at the library? That's a great question. I think there are definitely some arts humanities labs that are parasitic that really do depend on the aura of scientificity and legitimation around that term lab. Um, there's been efforts in the digital humanities that I think do precisely that. Uh, for a time, there, were, there was a director at the Stanford Literary Lab by the name of Franco Moretti 
um, who I think did precisely that. And he became very famous for his work called Graphs, Maps, and Trees that tried to do a, a big data analysis of thousands of novels and claimed that uh, that was the new literary studies. Um, Franco Moretti is no longer the director of that lab, so I don't think that lab is so much about that anymore. But I think what characterizes that approach, that approach that's trying to appear more scientific, is uh, that it black boxes lab practices. You have no idea what exactly is going in that going on in that lab. You have no idea what the infrastructure is, what the space of the lab is, what the administrative structure is. Um, and uh, if you read uh, a book called Laboratory Life by Bruno Latour from the 1970s, that is exactly the the way that science operates and scientific labs operate. They sort of depend on this process of black boxing to then produce truth and facts on the other end. So again, there is a, a faction, I think, especially in the digital humanities that's taking that practice up probably pretty uncritically. But where the arts and humanities come in is in their ability to be self-conscious and transparent about these about these things. It's definitely not the only thing that they offer, but to me, the most interesting instances of arts and humanities labs are ones where they are constantly documenting what they're doing, who's doing what, the space, the politics, and they're taking up projects at the same time as they're thinking about how those projects are impacted by um, politics, space, infrastructure, um, funding, that sort of thing. You're listening to Looks Like New, a new show on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Lori Emerson. She's founding director of the Media Archaeology Lab at CU Boulder. Stick with us and we'll be back. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. This month, we're speaking with Laurie Emerson, who directs the Media Archaeology Lab at CU Boulder. It's a place where uh, uh, you can go and, and uh, uh, use, play with, uh, interact with old computers and other kinds of machines that all still work. Um, it's in the basement of a building on the CU Boulder campus, and I really recommend uh, uh, taking the time to uh, get to know it sometime. Uh, Lori, tell us a bit about what people can do there, what you can, you enter into into this space that you've created, uh, what opens up before you, what can you, um, uh, how can people start, uh, start tinkering, start finding, uh, 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 start exploring it? 
I think what makes the lab so wonderful, but also sometimes overwhelming, is the sheer number of things that you can do in the lab. And uh, I have a compulsion to just collect whatever weird things people give me. Um, So when you come in the lab... People might be overwhelmed with the number of things facing them. Uh, You first come in the door and there's a whole wall of software, software going back to the late 1970s. Like boxes. Boxes and boxes. Back when software came in boxes. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Beautiful boxes full of documentation and and manuals. And manuals. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) We do actually have a pretty substantial printed matter selection or collection that I'm proud of. Uh, it takes a little bit of delving to see how valuable it is, but once you start looking around, you see that it really is from a whole other era of computing and, and technology. We've got manuals for uh, all of the machines in the lab, and um, so, some of the manuals that are most interesting to me are ones like uh, the the manuals that came with the Apple Macintosh from 1984 that explains in very fine detail what a window is, uh, how you double-click, pages and pages of tutorials teaching people the skill of how to double-click, uh, which in itself I, th- I hope is valuable for people in terms of defamiliarizing um, technologies and techniques that have become over-familiar right now. Um, to go back to that wall of software. Likewise, we've got a lot of software on typewriting. We've got all this weird, interesting Mavis Beacon software from the 1980s that's sort of teaching women how to become really efficient typewriters and doing it with software. Um, and then going further back, we also have manuals for uh, how to be effective secretaries. Um, and then we've got the requisite typewriter and typewriting station of the era to go with the handbook. So, so much of the lab just gives you the freedom, I think, to uh, revisit alternate uh, alternate careers, ergonomic situations, technologies, pieces of software that have either totally disappeared from view from our contemporary culture um, or just are inaccessible because they're they're too old. So people can play around with uh, secretarial software, typewriting, video games. Uh, you can play with the earliest iterations of word processing software going back to the 1980s that really gives you insight into how that ubiquitous piece of software, Microsoft Word, might be completely different. Um, you can play with totally different modes of computing. You can turn on the the Altair 8800B and experiment with what it's like to compute using switches. It's, a, it's an 8-bit computer, and the switch moves up, and that is a 1. The switch moves down, and that is a 0. And then the output is these flashing red LED lights. So I like to invite people to imagine what if computing had taken that direction and what we were carrying around with us are little computing boxes with switches rather than these very glossy, shiny, graphical user interface devices. It's a different theory of accessibility. You know, you were talking about accessibility earlier, right, that... Uh, that was at work in that time. Today, the 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 notion is that there are no more manuals. There are no more. Um, there's no more explanation of the double click. Uh, uh, and and you know, the, I'm glad you mentioned that. I remember once 
uh, uh, signing up to volunteer to teach computer classes for you know people at a community center uh, and and uh, I had this whole curriculum planned at the time I was a, a soon to fail computer science student in in college and I had this whole plan laid out about what I wanted to teach and I realized on the first day that most people there you know who had many were recent immigrants who'd come from places where computers were less ubiquitous really it was actually the physical acts of double clicking we hadn't we had to focus on I hadn't I just didn't expect that yeah. Um, but the the idea that there would be a manual explaining those kinds of things that that the creators had to take it upon themselves to explain and and actually speak to the reason of the user rather than rather than um, that this expectation that everything must be intuitive, um, which in turn I think that the the expectation of intuition it 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 hides so much so much of the functioning of the machine. It has to be hidden in order to create that illusion. So you don't get that. You don't get those ones and zeros. You don't get to interact with uh, the the machine at these uh, uh, closer, lower levels. Yeah. Yeah, I really think this this new era of not explaining how things work is just an attempt to, by the computing industry to make its own biases and even prejudices appear natural and unquestionable. I don't think there's any individual person sitting there and consciously plotting to make this the case, but that is exactly what's happening. And I can see it and experience it very clearly when I attempt to play video games. So I was not raised on gaming like a lot of other people who come into the lab. And in fact, I've played very few video games in my lifetime. But I can say that Gaming has evolved so much now that it is impossible for me now to play a contemporary video game because it doesn't come with any manual and I'm somehow magically expected to understand how all the controls work and the logic of the game. And it's uh, it's unfortunate. But there's, there's a lot of other ways that it works as well. Like all machines are unquestionably biased toward right-handed people. They're all unquestionably biased toward people with uh, very good sight, for example. Um, they're all unquestionably biased towards people who have good, um, I don't know what the word is, tactile coordination with their fingers to, to make possible all of the, the swiping and the turning and the, and the moving of your forefinger and your thumb. Well, and, and it's striking to me how the, uh, you know, when I brought different people into the space, they're drawn to different things. They're, they're drawn to, to one thing that they remember. And then from there, they're able to kind of make their way into other things, into, into less comfortable spaces. Uh, uh, one person who was uh, involved in some of the early computing history was attracted to, you know, the Osbournes up on the shelf, you know, and then a lot of my students are drawn straight back to the games. Right. You know, you talk about not being comfortable with games, but you've got a great, great gaming setup. You know, uh, uh, it looks like kind of a, um, a stereotype of an 80s uh, 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 gaming pad in, a, in some kind of uh, old movie. Right. Where where you've got some cushions to sit on and and big old TVs with with uh, uh, big fat TVs, not flat TVs. Right. Um, and um, and people. Uh, uh, gravitate toward what they remember, and then they kind of slowly branch out. Yeah. Um, and you realize in seeing that how 
how cultural, how contextual technology is, how much it depends on what you learned in the moments where you're coming of age. Yeah, it's very true. I haven't spent a lot of time reading up on or theorizing nostalgia, but I do watch it operate in the lab in a really interesting way. And I know it's been a, a longstanding thing in, in academia to be very scornful of nostalgia. Uh, I don't know. I guess nostalgia allows you to just long for something that is no longer so that maybe you're not accepting the present for what it is. I don't really understand how it works exactly. But to me, when I watch nostalgia operate in the lab, it's really quite wonderful and joyful and uh, the the most obvious way that it operates is exactly as you just said, Nathan, where people come into the lab and they're immediately drawn to the computer that they were raised on. I can't tell you the probably by now thousands of times people have walked into the lab and pointed, said the first thing out of their mouth, there's the computer that I grew up with. And then they smile and they beam and they'll tell a story about how that computer was ensconced in their kitchen or their living room and, you know, gathered around the computer with their families and friends and did whatever. Um, But the other way nostalgia works really interestingly is when we have young people, 18, 19, 20 years old, come in and they behave as if they too are nostalgic for technology that they've never actually lived through or maybe never actually used. Uh, record players, um, all of the computers that are not connected to the internet, the computers with the, the really clacky um, tactile keyboards, uh, it really seems to, weirdly enough, fill them with delight. And the only way that I can explain it is that they're living through some sort of generational n- nostalgia and then... Sometimes even what they'll do is they'll immediately start texting their parents. It's like they're channeling their parents' nostalgia as well. And they'll be texting and say, oh, my God, Dad, you wouldn't believe it. I'm using the computer you grew up with right now. Yeah. Now, what is the what is the value of these things in the end? What is the value of keeping these these allegedly obsolete machines alive? You know, my first impulse is to say... Joy, which is kind of, it's a very unacademic thing to say. But I, I really do think that there's something beautiful and valuable in injecting a, a sense of possibility um, back into technology. So I think that the most immediate visceral response I want people to have is joy or pleasure or delight. And then it leads to something much more serious, which is hopefully it gives them the tools to start thinking about how things were otherwise and how they still could be otherwise. So I I hope that it grants them imaginative license to start thinking beyond the technologies and the tools that we're told we have to just passively accept. Um, And I hope that that actually has a very profound effect on them. It's not just merely daydreaming about some past that existed or some future that might still exist. It's to actually give them the the ability to take that first step toward building and rethinking uh, the technologies that surround them every day. When when artists come in, you know, you do artist residencies, what do they do? What do what what do artists find among these machines? 
Oh, the, everybody that comes in the lab does something completely wildly different. But we did have a, a woman just in the lab who did a beautiful project of um, creating crocheted versions of old smiley Apple Macintosh faces. Um, we've had other people come in and do incredible musical performances with some of the uh, uh, music software that we have for the Commodore 64. Uh, or they've just done really wild uh, samples of all of the the weird noises going on in the lab and the, the sounds of the disk whirring and crunching and hard drives starting up. Um, we've also had people do sort of artistic uh, slash research projects looking at the changing conventions of keyboards and how the keyboards that we have now have become ubiquitous or normalized in a very standard way, but how back in the 1970s keyboards were so wild and variable and non-standard and just sort of tracking that evolution. Oh, what else have we had? We've had people create video games, new video games on old consoles. We've had people create distributed works of electronic literature that where we'll have little bits of text spread all over the different computers in the lab and then maybe projected on the ceiling as well. So yeah, the, the, the possibilities seem endless, which is really wonderful to see. Well, thank you, Lori, for joining us today. Thank you so much, Nathan. Thanks for being the first the first guest on this show. It's it's the, what the lab does is so uh, intimately related with I think what I want to try to see emerge uh, in these conversations uh, that we'll be having every month on uh, Looks Like New. So it's wonderful to have you as as the first. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Lori Emerson, uh, who's the founding director of the Media Archaeology Lab at CU Boulder. Uh, we've been exploring the question of what is a lab. Find out more at mediaarchaeologylab.com. I'm Nathan Schneider. I'm a professor of media studies at CU Boulder. Uh, Looks Like New is a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab in partnership with KGNU Radio. You can find out more about our work at cmci.colorado.edu slash medlab. If you liked what you've heard, please spread the word about this show and consider leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also love to hear from you with comments and guest ideas. You can reach me at MedLab for uh, Media Enterprise Design Lab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us next month.